idea can be used for any any type of depression in the sense that it does not have to be depression that that originated from a trauma. I was never planning to have a sponsor for the show unless it was something I really believed in. I've always believed in therapy, and I really believe in BetterHelp.com. Not only do I believe in them, but I'm a client of theirs as well. Registering was simple, and you can choose from various packages, some that start as low as $60 a week. You can utilize email, text, instant messaging, or video chat for your counseling. Some packages include unlimited contact. One of the best features is that you can connect with your therapist no matter where you are. How cool is that? If you're out of town, you can still have your regularly scheduled session or connect with your therapist from anywhere in the world. Sign up now at BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files and get 10% off your first month. That was BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files. It's professional, accessible, affordable, and convenient. Why not give it a shot? Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm excited today on the line we have Dr. Joyce Baptist. Dr. Joyce Baptist is a professor in the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Kansas State University. Baptist teaches core academic and clinical courses to master's and doctoral students. Her scholarship focuses on the traumatic effects of contemporary stressors on minority families and efficacy of clinical interventions. Her early scholarship focused on understanding the impact of war deployment on military families and cross-cultural conflict and relationship maintenance among Malaysian and U.S. emerging adults. This work e evolved into examining the effects of discrimination on marginalized groups, including mixed and minority race religion couples and resettlement stress of Rohingya Myanmar refugees. A key feature of her work is conceptualizing trauma from a socio-cultural perspective, her current work focuses on examining the efficacy of clinical interventions to mitigate suffering from traumatic childhood events using eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, or EMDR, therapy. Dr. Baptist, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So I'm really excited because I have heard just tremendous things about EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing. And I have never experienced that type of therapy myself, but I have heard from at least four or five people directly and, and people who are professionals in social work themselves who have had their own trauma. And people just say they rave about um, the success of EMDR. I'm wondering if, if we could start, could you just explain what EMDR is? Of course, EMDR is a therapy technique 
that was developed by a psychologist, Francine Shapiro, the late Francine Shapiro, in like the 80s. And she described walk, taking a walk in the park and she was thinking of some negative events in her life and negative emotions that, that were related to it. Then she found that her eyes started darting to side to side, which is the eye movement that we know of in EMDR and the negative emotions were relieved. And so that was the beginning of her investigation of, of this eye movement and its relation to negative emotions and trauma. And that's how EMDR kind of emerged. And today, the, the desensitization part of EMDR, which really is the reprocessing or, the, or really the, just the processing of traumatic memories that we've not had an opportunity to make sense of. So that's what EMDR is really about. So the idea is that when we experience trauma or distress in our lives, if we don't have the opportunity to make sense of it, especially for children, who it could be as a, you know, what we adults may think as a simple thing or something, a minor incident for a child, it could be very traumatic, um, like being bullied in a playground or something even, you know, smaller than that, like being afraid of the dark, for instance. If they've not had the opportunity to understand why perhaps they're afraid of the dark or why they're being bullied and what does it mean to them and how to manage that type of difficult events in their lives, that could kind of follow them throughout their lives to adulthood. And then if they experience something similar that conjures up the same type of emotion, so it could be a different incident, but it conjures up the same type of emotions that they experienced when they were bullied in the play playground or when they were afraid of the dark, that's when it can become traumatic as an adult. But they may not be able to make that connection to that time that that bullying incidents in the playground. And that's when the therapy comes in where we, re we help them process that memory as to what was it, what did it mean for them as a child and how does it rear itself again as in the adult life. So that's what EMDR is all about. It's processing those memories of, of distress and difficult situations that we didn't have an opportunity to because we didn't have the information we needed at that point to make sense of it, to fully understand what it was. Right. Wow. So I would imagine, so an example that you make me think of with being bullied on the playground as a kid and never really talking about that and never really understanding how much it really impacted you. And then later in life, if you're suddenly getting bullied at work and it could, could all of the sudden give you some traumatic physiological responses that you don't even understand where they're coming from. Yeah, exactly. And then that whole idea of being silenced, you know, as a child, you're supposed to just deal with it or you don't know who to go to because it's embarrassing. The same reaction could happen as an adult if you're bullied at work. It's embarrassing. Who do you talk to? And so you perpetuate that silencing and that could impact an individual's confidence, their self-esteem, their ability to just advance themselves 
not just in, at work, but in other relationships in their life, it could spill over this idea that I'm not good enough to be loved. I'm not good enough to be good enough to be, you know, um, rewarded in some ways. So that individual could, in a, in not intentionally, kind of sabotage their own opportunity to to be happy in life. Right, right. And is it true that some of these traumatic memories are stored differently or in a different part of the brain than a typical memory? Yeah, so there are some, some there are many different theories as to how the memories are stored. Um, not necessarily where it is stored, but how it is stored. Um, so the idea, so I can speak probably about the research that I've done. Sure. So I, I became really intrigued as to how EMDR worked because I was using it in my therapy and I found it to be quite effective in reducing distress, both traumatic um, reactions to trauma as well as depressive symptoms. And so my curiosity led me to perform a research using EMDR to treat depression and measuring the neural um, the neural response so how the brain responds to EMDR treatment and I measured theta cordons so theta cordons is one of the brain waves and we use EEG which is putting on an EEG cap and and looking at what happens to the brain waves how it modulates and how it changes as the individual receives treatment and what we found was that and I was looking specifically at tetacordons because there has been a lot of prior research on how tetacordons can measure the blood flow in the brain, which is technically it's called the cerebral profusion, which is the flow of blood and oxygen in the brain um, in two parts of the brain, the anterior cingulate cortex and the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. So basically, it's the front part of the brain, how much blood flow, and when there's more blood flow, there's more oxygen too that flows in the frontal part of the brain. And so what we found was that the the more treatment, as treatment progressed with EMDR and as depressive symptoms reduced, the tetacordons increased, meaning that there was more blood flow in the brain. And it if you think of exercise, for instance, often people say exercise and you feel better, you know, you help alleviate your depressive symptoms. And part of it is because you, you're you stimulating blood flow and oxygen in the body and the brain. So it's kind of the same effects of EMDR, that there's more blood flow, there's more oxygen, you can think clearly, and you're able to, to process that information. There is this neurological effect of EMDR is the ability to to process the information a little faster and it's not as dormant. So where exactly this information is stored, we believe it's in the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And yeah. What is it that causes some of those memories to get stuck? Mm -hmm. So one of the, so there are a lot of theories around this. So one of the theories around that is, like the brain, the brain is, is, I would say, very flexible. They call it neuroplasticity of the brain, which means that there is 
the ability of the neural networks to change and grow. Our brains can and change and it can grow. And as long as we're discovering and learning new material, we're creating these new neural networks. And so it's like repetition. If you remember as a child, you were all asked to, to repeat our times table. The more we repeat it, the, the more we remember it. So you're strengthening, we're strengthening that particular neural network in the brain. So, and it becomes, um, that's kind of how habits are formed as well. So it's true repetition. So when we, we repeat some, the more we repeat it, the more, the stronger it is, but it also means it's more stubborn. That means it's more difficult to change it. So if you've experienced, if someone's experienced um, a traumatic childhood and it's a continual, let's say abuse, it's continual abuse and neglect, the brain then forms this neural network and it's a very strong neural network because it's continual and it repeats itself and it, and then that child then um, is raised in this environment where this is normal, this abuse and neglect is normal and as they become an adult, that's kind of, the brain is kind of wired to seek those type of relationships and not because they want or like it, it's, be, it's more because it's familiar. They know how to deal with it. So it's not uncommon to hear of adults who've been abused as a child entering abusive relationships as an adult. And then they repeat this past trauma in these relationships because it's somewhat, in a strange way, it's comforting because they know what to do. They know what to expect. They, they're prepared for it. So the cycle continues in the brain. And so when you, when, so the question you ask is, what does it, does it get stuck? It's more about the neural, neural network path that is so strong that it's difficult to change. So even if that adult then experiences a very positive relationship, but, and they feel, you know, and it's a good relationship, they feel safe, they may not feel entitled to that relationship. It's not familiar. Right. They may engage in behaviors that sabotage that relationship. They don't want it. They don't know how to deal with that sense of safety and nurturance that they've never experienced before. Right. Yeah, I've heard those neuro pathways described as a path being carved and it gets deeper and deeper the more it's repeated and then it's really tough to break out of. So that makes a lot of sense for me when something is repeated, like you mentioned, repeated um, trauma of abuse that you're growing up with. What about in a situation where maybe somebody has a really traumatic car accident and it's not a repeated uh, incident, right? It's a one-time incident, a really bad car accident, and then people have trauma around that and maybe can't get in a car or don't want to drive. Is, is there a reason that that one-time incident, is there an explanation for how that can become uh, stuck in the brain and why that can become a triggering thing for someone? Yeah, that could be. And that's more an acute trauma. And so sometimes it's a, we call that a single event trauma. And so that could be difficult for the individual to manage because they may not have experienced anything similar to that. And so to be able to, to kind of comprehend 
why this happened or how this happened may make it difficult for them to then re-enter that car because of that fear that it could happen again. Um, the It almost supersedes the fact that they've entered the car many times and they've driven many times the same route safely and they've never had an accident. But that one accident, because they've never ever had an accident before, is so different, it kind of supersedes the fact that they have been saved on that particular route. And it's a much easier trauma to deal with because there's not as many layers of the onions to peel unlike childhood trauma. Right. So, so that's a, you know, it's an acute meaning that it happened more recently. It could be, you know, within a month or a few months and it could be that one single incident trauma which which is oftentimes just one treatment with EMDR can resolve. Right. So in the beginning, you mentioned how the woman who developed EMDR was walking and it was the darting of her eyes moving side to side that softened kind of the trauma or the difficult feelings she was having. What exactly would a person expect if they were going for EMDR therapy today? Is the therapist typically holding their finger up, moving it side to side for someone to follow their eyes? And at that same time, is there talk therapy going on? And are there other senses that they tap into? Yeah. So what the therapist would do really is stimulate both sides of the brain. So it's it's a bilateral stimulation of the brain, the left and right hand side of the brain. So there are theories behind the fact that, yes, your memories are kept on one side of the brain, and we want to transfer that memory to the neurologic, the, well, the part of the brain that controls linguistics. And so that is the part of the brain that will process the memory that hasn't been processed. So it's a bilateral stimulation of the brain, left and right. We can use eye movement, for those who can tolerate eye movement, um, some people can't tolerate eye movement because they've got dry eyes or they've cataracts. So there is the option of doing audio. So where there is um, a, you know, it, it just oscillates between left and right side of, and you will hear it using your headphones. And all you could use tapas. Tapas is something that you would hold in your hand um, and it would vibrate left and right. And so there are three different ways of, that the therapist could use to stimulate the left and right side of the brain. So it all depends on the preference of the client, what they can tolerate, and also the, the um, resources that's available to the therapist. Right. I hear you saying that it's really the bilateral piece that is so important. So it's not just taking one finger and tapping on a desk wouldn't do it. But if I took an index finger on each hand and tapped one at a time, I'm doing a bilateral type of motion that would impact me. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then from there, once the therapist has engaged the client in one of these pieces to engage the senses, then you start talking about a particular trauma that they've experienced? Yeah, so that's a good question. So what we do in EMDR, which I find it very 
you know, very user-friendly in the sense that because there are some clients who come in and they're not ready to talk about their trauma or they only know, remember pieces of that, the trauma. They, there are lots of memory loss like in between the years of the trauma. And so what we do is not expect, there's no expectation for the client to talk about the whole history of trauma or give details. It's more about Feel, you know, bringing back the that feeling that or the emotions that came about when you experienced that trauma. What what's still residual, you know, in in your body right now when you think about that trauma, that time in your life when you experienced that trauma. For some people, it could be a knot in their stomach. Some people, it could be a a, a heaviness in their chest. And for some, it's not a physiological. Some it's physiological and some it's an emotional, um, an emotion like anger or just sadness. Um, some feel, and some may have, you know, kind of like little flashbacks of memory. So it all depends on what the client brings in. So somebody may come in and and say that I just feel overwhelmed with sadness when I think of that time of my life. And that would be sufficient to begin the treatment. And so we have the client recall that time of their life, but not not hold on to it. Just recall it. So that was the time of your life and it makes you feel very sad. So imagine that you're sitting on a train and this train is moving. It's a moving train, meaning that you start from point A and that point A is when you feel that 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 emotion of sadness um, when you recall the trauma you've experienced and you're sitting in a train and occasionally you look out the window and because this train is moving, the scenery changes. So you may start with that sadness, but after a while it may change to something else. It may be linked to a memory. You may, as you redo the bilateral stimulation, a memory may come up and we continue with the bilateral stimulation. You don't hold on to that memory or try to analyze and figure out what it's about. You notice you notice it just like how you would notice something when you look out the window of the train and then the train moves on. And so the bilateral stimulation continues and then you look out again, you see a different scenery. So you see, a, you may recall a different memory. You may feel something different in your body from heaviness in your chest that heaviness may move to your shoulders, it may move to your head. Your feeling of sadness may change into anger, it may change into pain. So what we do is we 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 do about it depends on the on the situation too. Sometimes um, the therapist needs to monitor the reaction of the clients during the bilateral stimulation. So let's say we do 10 sets of bilateral stimulation. We stop and we have the client tell us what came up for them. Like, what did they see when they looked out the window, so to speak? When we, And then the client will tell us and we continue. And the only reason why we stop and ask the client what they saw and what came up is to ensure that it's there's processing happening. If the client says that, I feel heaviness in my head, and then we stop again and ask what came up. I still feel the same heaviness in my head. And we stop again and the client says, I still feel that heaviness means the client is stuck. So the reason why we stop periodically is to check to ensure that the processing is happening. If 
if there's stuckness, then the, the therapist needs to do something. They have to intervene. Um, there are different things that they can do. Um, what They call it interweaves. And so depending on the situation, the therapist may do different types of interweaves to unstuck the client. And sometimes the, the bilateral stimulation, the sets um, go on a little longer to try to unstuck the client. And sometimes it goes longer too if we notice that there are changes, like let's say if, the, if we're doing eye movement, and typically the eye movement will go smoothly from left to right, but if there's some jumping of the eyes, let's say the eyes um, kind of goes up and down, or the so looking at the pupil of the eye is something that the therapist needs to do throughout treatment to, to kind of monitor what's happening. Um, when there's such movement, we'll continue the bilateral stimulation and not interrupt the processing to allow the brain to do what it needs to do. So the number of sets and the duration, all there are many different factors that play play into that. Wow. And when a, a client first comes to see you, I would imagine that you do not just jump right into EMDR and talking about their traumatic past during a first session, or would you? Yeah, typically not. Typically what happens in the first session is, you know, getting the story, what what's most distressing about the the issue that they're being confronted with and the history of therapy. Have they had therapy before? How has it gone? What worked for them? What didn't work for them? And I typically don't assume that. So, so my therapy is a little different because most people who come to me come to me for EMDR because they know I'm an EMDR provider. Um, but if there are ther- clients who come to me not necessary for trauma or EMDR, then I do an assessment to see whether EMDR could fit. And if it if I think it fits, then I send them off with material, have them do their research on EMDR send them to EMDR IE website to read about it, to, to in, there are some really neat videos there for them to watch, to know what to expect from it. And after they've done that, when they know, have some information and know what to expect, that's when that I'll start EMDR. But it starts first with a resource installation, meaning that we, because when we start processing trauma or any form of distressing memory, it's kind of like opening a can of worms. Right. Yeah, we don't, we can't know what's going to come out. So we need to have a way to ensure that we close that can at the end of the therapy session so that when the client goes off and, and live, you know, their lives during the week, they're not inundated with this the stress of their past trauma. So we start with a resource installation to ensure that the client has a way to manage any past trauma or traumatic memories or however you want to say distress that that um, kind of seeps out from the can during the week. And so sometimes the resource installation is quick, meaning that it takes just you know two sessions. So the first session is to install the resource, and the next session is to ensure that the resource works. Um, once we ensure we know that it works for the client, if it doesn't work for the client, then we have to change it to something else until 
until we find something that really works for the client, then do we start the processing of the traumatic memories, then it's safe to do that. Right. And is an example of that, like finding a super comfortable, safe place in your brain, like a place that's super comfortable for you, like maybe somebody thinks of being on a hammock next to the ocean? Yes, yes. That's oftentimes, um, that's kind of like, for me as a therapist, every therapist does different. For me, that's kind of my, my, the where I go, I said, let's develop a place that you feel calm and safe and secure. Um, what would that be? And there are some clients who find it very difficult to imagine being safe. Um, they can't imagine ever being in a safe place. So their resource could be different. It could be a person. Who, could, who do you feel safe with? Is there a person in your life? It could be an imaginary person or a person they've never met that they know of but they've never met this person, but there's just the idea of being with this person um, is very soothing. And that could be their resource. It doesn't right. necessarily be a place. It could be a person. It could be an object. I've had um, clients who recall, um, you know, just like a candle, a, a, a scent that they... They recall having in their grandparents' house whenever they visited, and it was very soothing and it was very reassuring. And so they bring it into session. They bring, whether it's a, typically it's not a candle, but it's like an essence, and they would sniff that. And that's what helps them calm down. So it all depends on what works for, your, for right. the client. It's kind of nice because it's tailor-made for the client. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, the, I think the only negative thing that I have heard of about EMDR is that some people say, well, talking about your past trauma could be re-traumatizing. And I know I think that's kind of what you're getting at by thinking of this safe person or the safe place or a safe object. Um, do you see that as a risk with EMDR? Is it possible to re-traumatize somebody? and actually make a, a worse outcome than a positive outcome? Yeah, I would say if the, if the therapist is well-trained, they, uh, they should not be re-traumatized. The client shouldn't be re-traumatized if you have a well-trained therapist. Um, and there are, if I, so I'm also trained in exposure therapy. And compared to exposure therapy, that really exposes the client to their past trauma where you have to recall details of your trauma and um, verbally you will narrate it as well as sometimes even write it down. EMDR doesn't require that. And so there is, from my perspective, there is less opportunity to re-traumatize your client when there is no expectation for the client to give you details of the trauma. Oftentimes what happens though is once the processing is done and the and processing and the reprocessing is done, the clients want to share details of their trauma because they can do it mm. in such a way that it does not re-trigger the same emotional reaction as it did previously. And they're quite amazed 
that they can tell the story like it just like it's just a story it's a matter of fact this happened to me that's really interesting i've met at least one or two people who have shared trauma with me primarily on this podcast who have said i did emdr or i would not even be able to talk about this right now mm-hmm. um, yeah. and, and the other piece i've heard several people who have used emdr say that during the session they were at times like in tears, tears just running down their face. And it was very emotional. But again, they were really positive outcomes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for many people, it's empowering to be able to tell your trauma story without feeling traumatized or re-traumatized. That, em- that, emotional, that, you know, that emotional pain is no longer there. Oh, it's at the at the you know at best it's minimal that they can tell this story and feel empowered and say yes that happens to me but here I am today and this is what my future is going to look like. Yeah, that's fantastic. I I would imagine empowering and maybe even a little liberating. There's there's no more this secret that they're hiding and trying to squash down. For sure, for sure, it's yeah very liberating and yeah very freeing. Are there other possible side effects? And, and I'm curious about relapse rates and how long the, the therapy typically works for somebody who's had a traumatic experience. The, so the research that I've done, of course, our follow-ups are not very... Right now, it's up to nine months of follow-up post-treatment. Um, so I've compared EMDR to CBT therapy, which is you know, very, very... Um, popular out there and very commonly used for trauma and many other presenting issues. And I, what I found is, though they're both as efficacious in a sense that for, for depression particularly, and I've also tested it with suicidal ideation, they're both efficacious, meaning that the symptoms reduce post-treatment to a point where they're either reporting no depression on and no suicidal ideation. And then when it comes to follow-ups and post-treatments, and we've done it up to nine months, what I found is that EMDR's outcome is more sustaining. That means it continues to be low. It may increase a little bit, but not to a clinical level, whereas for CBT, it increases a little bit more than EMDR. So in terms of sustainability, there is definitely a lot of promise that EMDR is a sustainable, um, your outcome is sustainable. That's that's excellent. You know, one of the statistics I read recently is that depression is ranked by the World Health Organization as the single largest contributor to global disability. I'm just curious, you mentioned that EMDR could be used to support somebody who's dealing with depression. Now, is that particularly somebody who is dealing with depression based upon a traumatic incident, or could it just be another type of depression? It could be any depression, as long as the symptoms of depression. So EM, there's been more research on EMDR for depression recently, and it has not reached a, to the level of evidence-based treatment yet. EMDR is not an evidence-based treatment for depression. It's not yet recognized as that because the research is more recent, and but it can be used for any any type of depression in the sense that it does not have to be depression that 
that originated from a trauma. It can be depression that has nothing to do with a past trauma. That's awesome. That's that's incredible because one of the things I've said on this show oftentimes is um, it's just it's kind of sad. I mean, the antidepressants are about the only thing you can go to typically, and there's very you know first of all you, you it takes so long to see if you're taking the right antidepressant four to six weeks, and then you try another one, and it's kind of like guesswork, and that's part of the reason I'm trying to explore on this show other options. And to know that EMDR may be an option for people with depression or, like you said, suicidal ideation is fantastic. Yeah. I think the key here is to get finding a well-trained therapist, an EMDR therapist that's well-trained. Um, yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. And that is something that I have said to anybody that I recommend EMDR to just because it is such a sensitive topic and you're talking about past traumas and that make sure you have somebody who is really, really good and you have a recommendation or referral or something. And it was clear earlier in our conversation how attentive you need to be to your client to notice, are their eyes darting back and forth or did they change a bit? Um, and you're, you're, you have to be so tuned into your client, it sounds like, to watch for any little differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and if you're using audio or tactile and your client could close their eyes if they're more comfortable doing that. And so you've got to be looking for other cues, um, changes in their body posture, twitches in their body, for instance, um, movement of their mouth, um, you know, whether they're piercing their mouth or, or their lips. Um, so there, yeah, you've got to be in tune to all that because they're, they're all cues. Yeah, that's amazing. Is there any difference in the way you conduct EMDR therapy for somebody who you know has experienced trauma compared to somebody who is just dealing with severe depression? So the, the part that would be similar for both, whether the individual comes in um, reporting PTSD symptoms or reporting non-PTSD PTSD symptoms and only depression is that there would be a detailed history taking to identify adverse childhood experiences that differentiates between PTSD and complex PTSD. And the what would be different is that for individuals who come in with symptoms of PTSD, then I would differentiate between um, acute trauma and chronic trauma. So acute trauma, others, as I mentioned earlier, it could be single episode trauma that or trauma that happened more recently, because the treatment for that tends to be much faster, um, and you need fewer sessions for that, and you can start the treatment sooner, meaning that. You don't need as much history taking or resource installation. Whereas if you're working with complex PTSD, the trauma that's, that the individual has experienced for many years, um, you need more resource installation because there is, there is just more likelihood of, you know, of different types of distress that could kind of creep up. So that would be the difference. 
What about with a traumatic situation? I know you talked earlier about talking about the emotions that come up when you are thinking about that particular trauma. What is kind of the focal point or focus when you're working with somebody with depression who may not even know where the depression is manifesting from? Yeah. So the so we typically do three. We ask for three things: um, the emotion, what the emotion is, and so naming the emotion. So some emotion and feelings are different. So somebody could be as they're relaying their story, they could be crying so the tears crying is an emotion but what are they feeling when they're crying so some people it's anger some people it's sadness some people it's grieving the loss of something so that's one thing that we would um, assess and then for then the other one is somatic it's how 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 do you feel in your body as you're relating the story as you're you're talking about your trauma of depression, where are you feeling it and, and how does that part of your, you know, feel, whether it's your chest, your head, for instance. Um, and then it's it's memories, um, just memories and images that come to mind as you're relating your story. So, so for some people, it's one could be stronger than the other. So, in the, so there are some people who only feel it somatically and so they may have terrible back pains, for instance, and they've tried, and so they've tried all sorts of different pain management, and it's not uncommon for them physicians to say, I've tried everything with you, I think you need to go see a therapist. And it is likely that those individuals may carry the stress um, in their bodies, so it's more physiological for them. And they would have more physical pain and Fibromyalgia probably is an exa- a good example of of a I guess it's a a way distress or mental health issues can manifest in your body um, because oftentimes fibromyalgia is linked to a mental health issue where um, all many types of treatments have been tried pain medication especially but individuals with fibromyalgia don't experience much relief um, until they come they do some men- psychotherapy um, so to speak wow i never knew that it's very common to have clients come in with um, chronic depression or recurrent depression and also have fibromyalgia or some form of pain in their body right right which actually was manifested due to a mental illness Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. That is incredible. So, Dr. Baptist, before we leave, I would like to ask you, if uh, if somebody is out there struggling right now, this is the way I, I end most of my shows, uh, what type of, what piece of advice would you give somebody who might be listening right now and really struggling with depression or PTSD? Mm-hmm. Well, I would advise, since we're talking about EMDR, I would advise um, the individual to give EMDR a try, um, going to the EMDR IA website and look for therapists in their area um, that are trained in EMDR and read their profiles, call a couple of therapists, kind of you can interview your therapist, so to speak, you know, um, 
most therapists would provide a brief consultation, a free consultation to get to know you, to, to kind of have an idea of what you're looking for and to ensure that they can help you. Um, well, that's what I do. I, I, give a, I always con, you know, have this brief consultation with clients to ensure that I'm not, I don't promise something I can't deliver. And I can't promise anything. I can't guarantee anything, I would say. But I try to ensure that it's a presenting issue that I can work with. Right. And so calling a few therapists in your area and checking them out, asking them questions, sharing your, you know, your story briefly, mainly your expectation. And if you've had experience with past therapists, um, that kind of helps too. Because if let's say you've had experience with a therapist before that didn't go well, it's important for your therapist to know to ensure that they, you know, they they don't do the same thing for the same um, type of therapy, for instance, or they can actually provide you something different that could could be more effective. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I love the fact that you mentioned you know, you're kind of interviewing that therapist too. It's not just them saying if you're going to be a good client, but you really want to make sure that that therapist seems like the right fit for you as well. And earlier, I really appreciated the fact that you said you would send home a client who doesn't know about EMDR with some pieces of research so that they can read and learn about EMDR. I think that's really important for people to understand that you don't have to be a doctor to at least understand the basics of different types of therapies. Once in a while, I'll meet someone who's on several different medications for mental illness, and they don't even know why or what the meds do. And I just think it's really important to engage in those conversations and to understand, at least at a basic level, what you're getting into. Yeah, for sure. And you know, client therapist fit is so important that if you even after interviewing a couple of therapists, you you settle on one and you meet the therapist, and it just doesn't seem like a good fit. Uh, it is okay to switch therapist. It's you know you're the customer, and you need to find somebody that that gets you. Yeah, I think that for you're not obliged to stay with a therapist even you know after you complete an intake, you're not obliged to stay with them if it does not feel you don't feel safe or you don't feel that it's a good fit. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. awesome advice. And in fact, I just gave that to somebody today because that's something I say often too, like trying a therapist for the first time. I usually say give them a shot for two or three sessions. And then if you don't feel like you're clicking and it's not a good fit, find somebody else. And it can be a real bummer sometimes to shop around and to share your story again, but it is so worth it and so important to find the right therapist that that you click with. Yes, for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Baptist, I want to thank you so much. Thank you for all of the, the research you've been doing around EMDR and its use for depression and for PTSD. And, uh, and I really want to thank you for taking the time to be on the depression files. You're welcome. This has been a pleasure. It's been was a real honor to be asked, and I do hope that your listeners will learn something helpful. All right, awesome. Well, thank you so much, and make sure you stay healthy. Yeah, you too. Bye, Al. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. 
If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.